0: I recall many times as a young person, young teenager especially, laying in my bed late at night, unable to sleep, and this this wasn't an occasional occurrence, this was a constant occurrence, because I was terrified, and what I was terrified of was that either I was not saved, or I had somehow lost my salvation. I had no assurance of salvation whatsoever, And, and in later years, I've kind of thought back as to why, and I really came up with, I think, three pretty important reasons why I had no assurance of salvation. The first reason was I'd never been taught about assurance from the Bible. What I'd been given was human assurance on the basis of spiritual experiences and emotions as a smaller child, which I've shared in the past, but I really had no objective evidence that I could be secure in my salvation. Second reason I was terrified was I had no Christian friends at all. Our family's church attendance was spotty at best with months going by at a time without even attending church. And so my entire contact with humanity was completely worldly. I I desired to follow Christ, but I didn't know anyone at a deep level who really did follow Christ, except my dad and my grandparents, and I almost never saw them. They weren't in my life. The third reason I was terrified in these late nights was I was spiritually defenseless against my own sin nature i was continually doing things i sincerely regretted sincerely grieved my heart but i was powerless to stop it and my conclusion based on what little i did know was that i was saved and yet going in and out of salvation based on my sin and my subsequent sorrow for sin that basically i was like a living book of judges where Israel would rebel, would be disciplined, and repent, and show sorrow, and then do it again, and again, and again. And I was living that spiritual nightmare. And so for me, the doctrine of assurance of salvation is extremely personal. Because I spent many years with no assurance, and only fear. And I tell you, I can feel that terror as if it was yesterday. I I remember that. But in John 17, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us this glorious, objective evidence of the assurance of our salvation that God will finish the work that He began in you. So far, we've seen that we can have assurance and confidence in our salvation because of the Father's glory, because of the Son's glory, because of the Father's sovereignty. This morning, we looked at the Father's choice. Tonight, we'd like to look at the fact that we can have blessed assurance because of the Son's authority. The son's authority. Now, we could make this really short and simply say that you can have assurance of your salvation because Jesus is bigger than everything. But that would take the richness out of understanding the true treasures and the heights of the absolute authority of Christ. And we see this referenced here in Jesus' prayer almost immediately. Look with me back at verse 2. One little phrase. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, unlike some of the other topics that we have looked at, this is the only reference to the authority of Christ here in John 17. But it's enough for us to really go on. Because this is not the only reference to the authority given to the Son by the Father in all the Bible. In fact, in the New Testament, this is everywhere. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. In other words, Jesus says there is an exclusive relationship that nobody else understands or enjoys. All things handed over to him by his father. John 335, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. John thirteen three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So it's very clear that there is a measure of authority here that is given to the Lord in, in a way that no other human being has ever experienced. Now, obviously, Jesus has always had authority as God. But because of his faithfulness to go to the cross at the behest of his heavenly Father, he is now given authority for the first time as the God-man. The Son of God has always existed, but there was a moment in time when He became a human being. Now, forever, both the representative of God to humanity as God and the representative of mankind to God as a man. And so authority that He has, He possesses, this has now been extended, in that He previously didn't have a kingdom with kingdom citizens. He had not yet conquered sin, but all the work of the cross all the the redemptive work his resurrection all this has procured for him great glory and great authority now we could identify many areas of authority which Jesus possesses just a few examples here he has for example the authority to govern his creation he can govern his creation luke 8:25 records Jesus' disciples marveling that he could rebuke the wind and the waves and control them. We know from Colossians 1.17, He is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together, that all the particles of the universe maintain their trajectories and their velocity by the will of Jesus Christ. The earth is orbiting the sun at 67,000 miles an hour while spinning, and that's a, a, that, that is maintained by him. At the equator, the earth is spinning at 1,037 miles per hour, and you adjust that just a few, one, one way or the other, and it begins to have massive impacts on our planet. All the invisible souls of men, all the invisible angels are in the grasp and the control of Christ. So he has authority to govern all that he's created. We could give another example. He has authority to rule demons, the fallen angels. Mark 127 records people marveling at Jesus. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. This was unheard of. They were considered uncontrollable. He has, of course, the authority to dominate disease. Acts 10.38 speaks of God anointing Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Disease either occurs or not by his decree, by his plan. See also the book of Job. We could also assert that Jesus has the authority to resurrect himself, to resurrect himself. He predicted this before he even died, John ten eighteen. no one takes it, that is his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my, my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. That's not based purely on power, it's based on authority, which is proven with power. And so we could go through all kinds of ways that Christ has authority, but I'd like to focus tonight, as is our practice in John 17 in these last weeks, to approach John 17 in the topics presented in John 17, I'd like to focus on those aspects of the authority of Jesus Christ, which might more directly relate to our dilemma. You know, and what, What's our dilemma? Well, it's very simple. Will Jesus Christ be able to make me survive my own death? Can I survive? Will I survive the separation of my soul from my body? Will my salvation do more than just give me peace on earth will it give me peace when i leave the earth let me put it this way when you're getting on an airplane everybody says well i'm not afraid to fly that means everybody's afraid to fly but you are you asking questions like this what is the viscosity of the oil that this plane uses who manufactured the electrical systems How much did the plane cost? What's the tire pressure on the landing gear tires? What year were the light bulbs changed last? You're not asking those kinds of questions. You're asking for basic information. And you don't ask it out loud, but you do ask it in your mind. What do I need to know for this flight? You know how when you board an airplane, everybody looks to the left to the cockpit? Why are you doing that? Because you're going, pilot, check, got that. That's one basic And you look again, does he look confident or does he look like a deer in the headlights? Looks confident, check that off, that's good. You know how everybody looks out the window attempting to look calm during takeoff? What are you really looking for? Wings, check, got that. They look again, engines not on fire, check that that, that off. And then they lean out and they look down the aisle, doors are all closed, that's good, cabin pressure will be maintained. Then they look at the people in the emergency exit aisles, strong young people, check that works for me now you can relax because you've checked off those basic questions that tell you that there's a decent chance this is going to be a safe flight and so i'd like to focus on those basics on those areas of authority which christ possesses which from our vantage point will guarantee safe passage to our eternal home So we'll be going by some really important New Testament passages, so it might be useful for us to kind of do this new uh, Bible study style and make certain we're seeing the text for ourselves. I don't always have you turn to every text, but I think tonight it'll be useful to you to physically see these passages and note where they are, which side of the page, which part of the page, and so forth, so that it embeds itself deeply in your heart. So from our vantage point, which areas of authority does Christ possess which guarantees safe passage the basics like a pilot and wings and the engine's not on fire and those sorts of things. Well, here's the first area of authority. We'll call this one authority to forgive sin. Authority to forgive sin. And we'll start very basically here. Turn back with me to Mark chapter two. Mark chapter two, and we'll lay eyes on these passages so that they embed themselves deeply in our hearts. This is the core, most basic fundamental we need we have from Christ is that is if he has no authority to forgive sin, and yet he says no one comes to the Father except through me, then Jesus can make no promises. He can make no guarantees. That would mean he has all the responsibility, but none of the authority. If you've ever had a job like that, you know that doesn't go well. If you have responsibility, you must have authority. Now, Mark chapter 2 contains a very familiar healing to us, one of the most famous, one of the most dramatic but we'll notice that the point of the healing has nothing to do with the man's physical ailment. And we'll just read the story. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And of course, the man immediately picked up his bed in front of everyone. Jesus was proving with his power over disease that he has authority to forgive sin as well. That he has authority to do something no one else can do. That is to cleanse the sin record of the courts of heaven. To expunge the record, so to speak. To make it as if before holy God, you have never committed a single sin. There's no one else who can do this. Listen, the uselessness of earthly men trying to pronounce Forgiveness of sin, such as in the Roman Catholic religion, the uselessness comes from the fact that they have no authority to do so. No human being can declare another one forgiven. All sin is against God first and foremost, and thus only God can choose to forgive sin. Let me give you an example. You, for example, may obey the New Testament and you may choose to forgive someone who has hurt you, someone who has offended you, but... That has absolutely nothing to do with, your, with that person's sin record in heaven. As you forgive someone, it is useful to say, I forgive you, but you should get right with God. Because God can only truly expunge the heavenly record. That's a separate matter altogether. And so for the Son of God to provide safe passage in your salvation at the fundamental level, at the very start, he must be able to pronounce you forgiven. And I know that you've heard so many sermons. You've been so immersed in the gospel. You've been so drenched in the truths of the cross, which is fabulous and good. But stop for a moment to think, if you were to make a list of every sin you've ever committed, sins of the tongue sins of your mind sins that your hands have committed sins where your feet have taken you where you ought not to go sins where your eyes have watched things that they ought not to see sins that your ears have listened to things they ought not to hear these would be innumerable who can erase that who can take that away only Christ can it has to be somebody with phenomenal eternal authority So he must have the authority to pronounce you forgiven. Here's a second area of authority he has. Christ has the authority to declare eternal destiny. He has the authority to declare eternal destiny. And again, a familiar story to you. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. And it's important for us to to lay eyes on this and to kind of trace this pattern here. Luke chapter 23. And while you're finding Luke 23... Let me set up the scene. We're at the cross of Christ. Jesus has been crucified between two criminals called robbers, meaning thieves who likely committed murder also. People were passing by the cross of Christ and reviling him. That's a New Testament word that means verbal abuse. They were mocking him. Matthew 27 40 says If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. How demeaning, how mocking. And then, of course, came the leaders of Israel, the chief priests, which was an office that Jesus invented in the Old Testament, by the way. And the scribes, the Bible teachers, the elders, the men of the Jerusalem council, they mocked Jesus even as he was dying. But someone else was reviling Jesus as well, perhaps angry at their own circumstances and even staring death in the face they were reviling and abusing the very Son of God. Matthew twenty-seven forty-four says, And the robbers who were crucified with Him also reviled Him in the same way. But you see, as we learned this morning, 2 Timothy 1, 9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began, God decreed a moment in time when the spiritual eyes of the elect would be opened and the heart softened unto repentance. And after having reviled and after having abused and after having mocked the very Son of God, one of the criminals stopped. Chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Talk about the 11th hour. Having been empowered by the Spirit of God to humbly ask for mercy, the criminal received what I think is maybe the most ironclad guarantee ever. Jesus essentially said, don't be afraid, I'll go with you into death and I'll go with you to heaven. All the way home to heaven. Talk about assurance of salvation that right before you die, Jesus Christ himself lets you know, see you in a minute. See you shortly. But he has let us know this. If I could paraphrase the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians 5 6, as soon as you're away from your body, you'll be home with the Lord. What is that? Today you'll be with me in paradise. It's the same thing, it's the same promise. Now, you might say, Okay, I, I get that. But we're talking about traveling into the realm of eternity. We're talking about traveling into the spirit realm. I have never done that. What if I get lost? I mean, the last time I moved, I couldn't even find the first grocery store down the street. We're talking about traveling. Well, I, I hear all these stories. If I see the light, am I supposed to go to it? What am I supposed to do? Well, that brings us to our third area of authority. We'll call this one authority to travel the spirit realm. Christ has authority to travel the spirit realm. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. Fascinating passage. You need a Savior who has navigated and can navigate the invisible realm beyond our perception beyond our comprehension and so let's see how he does this 1 Peter chapter 3 right near the end verse 18 1 Peter 3:18 for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now let me stop right there for just a moment, just a little parenthesis here. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Yes, we understand that metaphorically, that we have been brought into right relationship with God. But this also means that He literally might bring us to God, that we won't get lost. We will find our way. Why? Because He will bring us. Okay, back to our main point. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now what is this speaking of? Well, this is clearly speaking of the actual physical death of Christ. Being put to death in the flesh. It says He was made alive in the Spirit. This is the eternal inner person of Jesus Christ. This is not speaking of His resurrection. That's a that's a different issue altogether. Between the time of His death and resurrection, He went. It means to go someplace. He traveled somewhere. And where He went was to the spirits, the unclean demons in prison. Now, what is this prison? Well, it appears to be what the new testament calls the bottomless pit or the abyss in which is held the most most of the demonic realm they're currently held at bay during the great tribulation in the future this abyss this bottomless pit will be opened these demons will be released to the earth once again revelation 9 and the fifth angel blew his trumpet and i saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. In other words, it, it's so, so many demons that it looks like smoke coming out. Well, how did they get there in the first place? Why are most demons in that abyss, in that bottomless pit? Well, Second Peter 2 verse 4 tells us, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, we need to make a little note here. The translation hell is the normal translation for the Greek word Gehenna, but this is a different Greek word, Tartarus. It's different than the lake of fire, which is most often associated with hell in the New Testament. And here they're being reserved for judgment after the brief freedom that they'll experience during the great tribulation. So how did they get there? They, they got sent there at some point. So that, that begs the question, and when did they get there? When was their great sin which got them there? Well, we just saw this in verse 20, when they did not obey in the days of Noah. What was it that they did? Genesis 6, 1 and 2 tells us, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. The sons of God, angels created by God, who had followed Satan into rebellion, now were operating out of bounds. They mingled with mankind, ostensibly taking the form of men And so they were physically killed in the flood and then consigned to the abyss. Jude 6 confirms this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So, I don't know about you, probably bottom of my list of places I would like to travel to. Unpleasant place. But this is where Jesus went. And here's what's amazing. When we think of our own deaths, we're trusting that someone's going to help us, right? Luke chapter 16 pictures angels coming to take you to heaven. So we're comforted in that regard, but not Jesus. When he died, he went where he wanted. Yes, he did tell the thief on the cross that they would be together in paradise. But remember that Jesus is omnipresent God. He can be where he wants, when he wants, as often as he wants. But Jesus, in the spirit, went to the abyss, not to suffer, by the way, as some have wrongly said, but to righteously boast and proclaim his victory. Now, where is the abyss? I don't know, but Jesus does. He knows where everything in the spirit realm is, and he goes where he pleases. Boy, that gives me a lot of confidence when he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The fact that he can navigate the spirit realm with such great authority gives me great, great confidence in his ability to get me home. What other authority does he have? Here's a fourth area of authority. We'll call this authority to defeat sin and wickedness, authority to defeat sin and wickedness. We stay here in 1 Peter 3, when Jesus traveled to the abyss in the spirit realm, he proclaimed, it means he preached, he proclaimed, he heralded his triumph and his victory. Boy, that's one sermon I would have loved to have heard. So we have to sort of make a guess. And we can make an educated guess about what that sermon consisted of by simply putting some first-person pronouns into scriptures that already exist so maybe he said something along these lines romans 5 18 and 19 therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so my act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by my obedience the many will be made righteous Perhaps he went into Romans 6, 9, and 10. You know that I will be raised from the dead. I will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over me. For the death I died, I died to sin once for all. But the life I will live, I live to God. Maybe he went into 1 Corinthians 15 when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory o oh, death where is your victory o oh, death where is your sting and maybe he went into colossians 2 verse 15 i disarmed the rulers and authority that's you and i put you to open shame by triumphing over you maybe he quoted hebrews 2:14 through death I have destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, your boss. Maybe he went into First John 3, 8, the reason I appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so there he is, boasting and gloating and saying, I win, traveling anywhere he wants, defeating sin and wickedness. Now you might say, that's great. That's terrific. Jesus has defeated sin and wickedness, but I'm still here. And I'm still wondering how all who are saved end up in the right place. How is that going to happen? And so we could highlight another area of authority that Jesus has. We'll call this one authority to gather his people across the centuries. Authority to gather his people across the centuries. And there's multiple ways that Jesus is gathering his people. And we'll just kind of walk through the basics here. The first way he's gathering his people is through salvation. Through salvation. Turn back with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24, he has authority to gather his people across the centuries. Several ways he's going to do this. The first way is through salvation. The basic way, obviously. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus said, I will build my church. He predicted that he would build from the ground up a group of kingdom citizens. But how long would he be able to maintain that momentum? How long would he be able to sustain that? I mean, we started our joyful generosity uh, campaign a year ago, and and we're going to have to push hard to maintain momentum for three years because that's just human nature. The church tends to be like a bowling ball that you roll up a hill and it comes right back down. And maybe you read the book of Acts and you say, wow, that's pretty exciting. When the church was founded right after the ascension of Christ into heaven, but everything seems exciting at the beginning. How long could he keep it up? How long could the growth of the church of Jesus Christ be kept up? Matthew 24, verse 14. This is Jesus Christ speaking, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is stunning. Jesus said this 2,000 years ago, that there will never be a time when the gospel is not being proclaimed. All the way to the end of his redemptive program, in the context here, specifically the end of the Great Tribulation, Why is Jesus making this claim? Why is he able to make this claim? We'll go a couple of pages over to Matthew 28, the very end of the gospel. After having successfully completed his father's plan all the way to the cross, having defeated death at his resurrection, after having completed payment for sin, Jesus makes a proclamation of what the father has given him. Very familiar to you, Matthew 28, verse 18 And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority concerning what? Concerning the building of his church. The raising up of kingdom followers. And it's with this confidence that he issues what has come to be known as the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. How long? To the end of the age. So he's gathering his people through salvation. But there's a second way Jesus is gathering his people, and that's through death. Through death. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. And Acts 7 is, is so unique because in Acts 7, we get a, a rare glimpse of the realms of heaven and earth. And this is at the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7. And as Stephen is dying, or about to die rather, we get a, a quick peek at what Stephen saw. Right at the end of Acts 7, starting in verse 54. Acts seven fifty-four. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What did Stephen see? Well, a little side note here. First of all, Acts 755 here, verse 55 says he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was completely and utterly under the control of the Spirit of God. And did it ever occur to you that perhaps if there was one point in your life that you can count on the Holy Spirit completely and utterly filling you and controlling you, it will be in the moments prior to your own death. The text doesn't say this applies to all of us, but I think it's a reasonable hope and assumption. It's safe to say that the moment we're dying is the moment when the Spirit of God so fully controls us to make us perfectly willing and eager to go home. But in that fullness of the Spirit, Stephen was able to see into heaven. That in the moments before his death, he was given this great gift to be able to see across the chasm from earth to heaven. He also saw something else. He saw the glory of God. That One little tiny short phrase to summarize all the other visions of heaven which we have in the Bible. For example, Revelation 4. At once I stood in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow. They had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So when the text says he saw the glory of God, that's what he saw. But he saw something else. Of course the highlight. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Not at the moment. Seated at the right hand of the Father. But standing. Ostensibly in welcome. And in greeting. And in encouragement. And so full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen saw into heaven. He saw the glory of God. He saw the Son of God. Who would greet him in mere moments. And did you notice Stephen's prayer in death? Lord Jesus Receive my spirit. By the way, proof that yes, you do pray to the Son of God. What did that mean? It means that Stephen was extremely confident that he would immediately join the Lord Jesus himself. And every single believer in Christ who dies is gathered and gathered and gathered to Christ. So Jesus is gathering his people through salvation, through death. There's another way he'll gather his people, rapture and resurrection. Rapture and resurrection. We're going to go faster for the sake of time, but you're familiar with this passage. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There is resurrection. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here it is. And so we will always be with the Lord. What's the benefit of rapture and resurrection? We'll always be with the Lord. He's gathering through salvation, gathering through death, gathering through resurrection, gathering through the rapture. And how else will he gather? He'll gather through return, his own return. The great tribulation will yield a harvest of new believers in Christ. And when Christ returns... Matthew twenty four thirty one says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's not the rapture of the church that happened seven, seven years earlier. This means he's gathering all the living saints on the earth, the tribulation saints. And by the way, you will meet your tribulation saints, brothers and sisters, since at the return of Christ, we'll be with him. Revelation 19, 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. were following him on white horses, of course, and we've studied this before. The, the fine linen, white and pure is a very specific description of the attire of the resurrected believers in heaven. So now the saints of the church age are united with the saints of the great tribulation, as they say, but wait, there's more. At that time... Daniel 12.2 says all the followers of Yahweh of the pre-Christian era, the Old Testament, will be resurrected. Now we're joined by the resurrected saints of all the ages. All together for the first time. The authority of Christ to gather his people across the ages. This should be tremendous comfort. And we've seen that Christ can transcend sin. He can transcend eternity. He can transcend even the spirit realm but this tells us he can transcend time. He transcends time. That's why, as we said this morning, the idea of God looking down the corridors of time is ridiculous. He inhabits the corridors of time. He controls them. Here's a sixth area of authority. I've already mentioned this to you, so I'll be brief, but it deserves attention. Christ has the authority to resurrect not only himself, but you. You. And that's what we're concerned about. He has the authority to resurrect you. But he alone, and no one else, has the authority to resurrect you. John six thirty nine and 40, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This was the prophetic hope of the ancient believer in Yahweh that we know as Job. He didn't know the name of the Savior. He couldn't articulate a doctrine of the Trinity. He didn't have the benefit of the revelation of the New Testament. He didn't know his name was Jesus. He didn't understand the concept of Messiah necessarily, maybe at the base level. But by God's grace and God's help, he did know this. Job 19 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. In other words, Job connected his hope of resurrection with the Redeemer. And in the Redeemer, Job is seeing God, and Job will see God as Job stands in his own flesh, in a resurrected body. And so even in the Old Testament, in the ancient days of Job, 4,000 years ago, he, in his own way, through the revelation of God, connected his resurrection to one person, the Redeemer. And that is, of course, Christ. Let's do one more. Christ has the authority to guarantee safety over every danger, To guarantee safety over every danger. And we'll probably do this text in even more detail on a later week, but I'd like to do this just briefly here. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Right at the very end. I don't think there's a clearer passage of comfort in all the Bible concerning our total assurance of salvation. This is the one that is the showstopper. This is the one that really makes all other assurances not maybe pale in comparison but at least seem a little dimmer this is the one that we really hang our comfort and assurance on romans eight thirty seven. Know no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's the key phrase, in Christ Jesus. That's where your safety lies. That's where your hope lies. Now, if you were counting, there's 10 items in this list which cannot get to you. Cannot threaten your salvation, cannot threaten your assurance. The ten items are arranged in four pairs and then you get two single items as well. And so we'll do it in that order. The first pair, death and life, can't get you. Now death is our most obvious fear and it's thinking on our death that maybe gives us the most temptation to fear that our salvation is in jeopardy because that's when it becomes very real that's when all the sermons you've ever listened to all the bible you've ever read what you have believed in christ at that moment it's too late to turn back but we join the apostle paul who said in philippians 1 that to die is what it's gain in fact paul said he desired to depart in death well what about life how can life threaten your salvation well Life contains persecutions, trials, temptations. It contains your failures. It contains your doubts, distractions. It also contains seductions and pleasures. All the things life contains which could lead you to believe your salvation is in jeopardy, all of them are powerless to take you out of the safe hand of Christ. The second pair, angels nor rulers. Now, my surprise is to find angels in this list, but in some arenas of the church in history, people have fallen prey to angel worship. Colossians 2.18 warns of this. The true believer might be tempted by a fascination with angels. It, it, to a certain degree, they're they're easier to fathom than God in some ways. But we also notice that the Greek word for angels simply means messengers, and does at times in the New Testament refer to human messengers. And so a, a human messenger could be a false teacher. And what this tells us is that no, no angel, no no supposed worship of an angel, no human messenger either, no false teacher, no false teaching, no one, as Paul called one of them, no messenger of Satan can lead you all the way to unbelief and to forfeit your salvation. Yeah, you might go down some roads you shouldn't. You, you might be fooled here and there, but ultimately you will never be Fooled to the point of unbelief. It cannot happen. What about rulers? Rulers, most likely speaking of fallen angels, demons, but again, this could also be speaking of any human ruler. In any case, no wicked demonic ruler, no wicked human ruler has the authority to wrench your salvation from you. They can't do it. And then we get a third pair present and future, present nor things to come. What does the present contain? Well, all the same things that life contains. Persecutions, trials, temptations, your failures, your doubts, distractions, seductions, pleasures. That's where we lose a lot of our peace and our joy, isn't it? It's in the present. It's in this moment. And that's what drives us to distraction. I just want to have peace. When? Now? Nobody's ever prayed, Lord, I'm really enjoying the anxiety I'm going through now, but I was hoping in a few days you could relieve that. No, we want it now. But nothing in the present can take our salvation. How about the future? Oh, the future may contain the promise or the dread of those things, of persecutions, trials, temptations, your anxieties, your failures, your doubts. And sometimes our dread of the future is worse than our anxiety about the present even. But what is Paul saying here? He's saying that time is powerless against you. Time is powerless. You know how to win over the present and even over the future? Just wait long enough. Just wait for the Lord. I, I wonder if there will be a moment, maybe when we first enter into eternity, when we're able to look back at all of our anxieties, all of our fears, all of our times of lack of faith and just kind of shake our head and say, really? Why did I not believe? Look at this. And so Paul says, you, you might be in dread of the present. You might be in dread of the future, but it cannot take your salvation. It cannot take your assurance. Then he gives a fourth pair, height and depth. Height and depth. This isn't complex. Height, everything bigger and more vast than you are. And depth everything deeper and darker and more terrifying than you can imagine neither has power to touch you why well we think of the psalmist in psalm 139 8 if i ascend to heaven you are there if i make my bed in sheol in the grave you are there in other words there is no height so vast and so high that god is not there there is no depth so deep that god is not there And then we get two single items, powers. This is a word often used in the New Testament for mighty works or miracles. Nothing that may seem to have more power than you, which is, by the way, pretty much everything, can overwhelm the power of God in you. You think about all the powers of of the wicked realm of Satan and his demons. You think about the power of your own temptation, the power of your own flesh. I, I mean, some of you don't have the willpower yet to stop binge watching something at four o'clock in the morning. And you think, how, how, if I don't have power over my own flesh, how could I certainly fight the power of the demons, fight the power of Satan? But the fact is, there are no powers anywhere that will overwhelm the ability of God to hold you safely in his hand. And then, number 10, the last single one, anything else in all creation. That's for all the pessimists in the crowd who lack faith and they're trying to find exceptions to the first nine. So what sort of authority does Christ have? we we put it all together, He has authority to forgive sin, to declare your eternal destiny, to travel in the spirit realm, to defeat sin and wickedness, to gather His people across the centuries to resurrect you, And to guarantee safety over every danger. That is absolute authority. I will never forget the first time I met John MacArthur. It was at my first shepherd's conference. And I mentioned to him, this was a long time ago. I mentioned to him that I had just applied to the Master's Seminary. And I I made a joke. And I I said, if the Director of Admissions lets me in. Dr. MacArthur said very simply, If he says no, call me, I'll get you in. I love that. And a lot of people heard that. I was kind of like, did you hear that? Did you hear what he just said? Why was he able to do that? Because as president of the seminary, it was his prerogative to make those guarantees. Jesus isn't a president. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. And there is no competition for his authority. All authority is his. And so what he says goes, and he says, you are going to heaven. Isn't that a comfort? It is to me. Our Father, we thank you so much for the the strength and the authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he gives us confidence. He gives us hope that at that moment when our eyes are fluttering, even as the light of this world dims, the light of Christ will glow brightly before us such that we would not even notice the change. That when the hand of our loved one upon us begins to grow faint, that we would feel the hand of Christ in ours. That when the sound of our loved ones speaking encouragement into our ears begins to fade away, even then we hear the songs of heaven in the voice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ saying, welcome home. Let us, Lord, be those who live as though we have that confidence every moment of every day, for it would be to the glory of Christ in whose name we pray.